During B.J. Jehoda's testimony, now he was the star witness against Bobby Salerno. He was a kind of a tough witness to listen to. And they called a break outside in the hallway near the water cooler. For some reason, Gary, I was so aggravating, a little little disturbed by B.J. Jehoda's testimony that I made a couple comments out loud that I normally don't do. And to my surprise, Bobby Salerno actually replied and spoke to me. And he told me, I'll never forget it. He said, you can see my son, Alex, who's representing me, is a very fine attorney. And I told Alex, before this trial started, if we lose, I don't want you to hang your head low. I want you to continue to be a top defensive lawyer. Don't let this trial affect your career in any way. Don't worry about me. I'm an old fighter. I'm a boxer. I can handle it. Then he went on to say, and I'll never forget this. He said, you can see I have my son, Alex, is a very fine attorney. He was very proud of his son representing him. He's like, my second kid, she's going to law school right now. And I'm listening. Then he put his head down. He's like, my third kid, he dropped out of school in the ninth grade. (laughs) And he kind of smiled. He's like, Jimmy, two out of three ain't bad. And that was it. That was my little conversation with Bobby that two of his kids are successful and the third one dropped out of school. Well, that's interesting. Well, welcome you guys back here in Studio Gangland Wire. Got James Emlack back on again. He's my friend in Chicago who has gone to a bunch of the mob trials out there. We've already done a couple. We did Family Secrets trial and we did the large guy, Mike Sarno's trial. And they were great. And I know a lot of people like them, especially in Chicago. So here we go. Another one with the trial of Bobby Salerno that James went to. So James, welcome. I'm really happy to have you back on here. Thanks for having me, Gary. It's a pleasure. I want to say congratulations on your 10,000 subscribers. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Just a little aside, and we'll get right back to the mob. James, there's two different audiences out there. There's the audio audience and there's the video audience. And they don't really overlap very much. Just like I was telling you about an old show I did. And you said, oh, you did? I didn't know you did that. Well, it was only on the audio platform. I could tell you hadn't really been on the audio platform. Hmm. So I first started big time into the video. I thought, God, I'll be losing people. But I think it really is added to the audio. People like to listen and not have to look because they're doing something else or working or jogging or driving or something else. They can't really look at the video. Uh, yeah. So anyhow, that enough about the podcast. Let's talk about the Bobby Salerno trial. It was held in the main courthouse down there in downtown Chicago and Cook County. Yeah, all the major federal trials are at Dirksen Federal Building, which is right there in the Chicago Loop, which is kind of like the financial district. Right. So tell us about when you went in there, What background did you have about this trial? What did you know about Bobby Salerno and this star witness, B.J. Yehoda, and the defendant and the other people who were involved in it? Okay, about a year and a half prior to Bobby Salerno's second trial was a major racketeering RICO case at the Dirksen Federal Building. The government called it the Good Ship Lollipop Trial. Now, unfortunately, I did not attend that trial, but I followed in the news in the papers every day. And that was a major racketeering case, loan sharking, gambling, and one of the charges was a murder. 
This crew, Rocky's crew, murdered Hal Smith, which was one of the largest bookies in the country. Yeah, that was Rocky and Felice, right? Rocky and Felice. At the first trial, the Good Ship Lollipop trial, you had Rocky and Felice, Louis Tomatoes Marino, Sally De Laurentiis, Bobby Bellavia, and Bobby Salerno. These are like the top guys in his crew. Every one of them is a made member of the Chicago Outfit. And at the end of the Good Ship Lollipop trial, all the defendants were found guilty except Bobby Salerno. The jury hung on Bobby Salerno. And I remember on Channel 7 News in Chicago, they showed Bobby Salerno coming out of the courtroom. He was ecstatic, even shocked. In his mind, I think he thought he beat the case. Now, at that first trial, he had a top defensive lawyer in Chicago called Terry Giuseppe. This guy represented all the mob guys in Chicago, Mike Sarno, Bobby Salerno, and several others. Bobby Salerno's son, Alex Salerno, was co-counselor. So fast forward, all the defendants are found guilty. The jury hung on Bobby Salerno. He was so proud that his son, Alex, sat at the defense table. 17 months later, the government tried Bobby Salerno again for the murder of Hal Smith. And some of us may or may not know this, but anytime the government tries you a second time, your chances of beating that case have really diminished because it allows the prosecution and the defense, it allows them time to really sharpen up their case. Any mistakes they made in the first trial, they're definitely going to tie up on the second trial. So I went to the second trial of Bobby Salerno. He was the only defendant. The government called five witnesses. Four of them were like associates, criminals of the Rocky and Felice crew. But the main witness against Bobby Salerno was B.J. Jehoda. Now, who was B.J. Jehoda? Now, who was he? B.J. Jehoda was basically a career criminal, an associate of Joe Ferriola, in the Rocky and Felice crew. He wasn't a made guy, but he was definitely a part of that crew. And he was also a large bookie himself. I don't remember the dollar amount, but he was literally making millions of dollars for the outfit. BJ Jehoda was very good friends with Hal Smith, the bookie that they killed. Tell us a little bit about Hal Smith. Paint a picture of Hal Smith. Okay. Uh, he's kind of a character, if I remember right. Hal Smith, according to the prosecution was one of the largest bookies for the Chicago outfit back in the day and literally one of the largest bookies in the entire country and this guy we'll call him an associate of the Rocky and Felice crew he was paying his monthly dues every month on time like clockwork never once missed a payment fast forward Joe Ferriola Boston Chicago outfit and Rocky and Felice decided we're going to squeeze every single bookie in Chicago. We want them to pay an extra $6,000 a month. According to Rocky and Felice, who was caught on tape, the reason they wanted this extra $6,000 a month was to pay for their lawyers and all the cops, sheriffs, and politicians that they were bribing. So when Hal Smith found out he had to pay an extra 6000 a month, 
he was livid. He's there's like no way in hell I'm paying this. I've been paying you guys every month. You never once had a problem with me. So he balked at it after numerous threats. One night he was at a restaurant, a famous restaurant here in Chicago called the Como Inn, right off of Grand Avenue. He bumped into Sally De Laurentiis. They had words, and basically Sally De Laurentiis told him, "You, my friend, are trunk music." Shortly after that, <laughs> yeah. Shortly after that, Rocky and Felice asked B.J. Jehoda, "Where does Hal Smith live?" B.J. Jehoda testified. As soon as Rocky asked him that, he knew Hal Smith was in trouble. Yeah. So they used B.J.'s home in Long Grove, Illinois, which is a very wealthy suburb of Chicago. Rocky's crew used B.J.'s home kind of like as a headquarters. This is where they were planning the casing and the tailing of Hal Smith. Also, in the Wrigleyville area near Wrigley Field in Chicago on the north side, B.J. Jehoda owned a luxury condo in a building called the New York New Yorker. And B.J. testified that that condo had an open door policy, meaning Rocky, B.J., and the crew could come and go into that condo. They could bring their girlfriends there. That was like their little place to gamble, have card games, kind of like a little social club for the boys. So I forget how many months they were tailing Hal Smith, but fast forward, Rocky and Felice got a little impatient and he switched to plan B. He now asked BJ Jehoda, I want you to bring him back to your house. So fast forward, Hal Smith, he was good friends with BJ Jehoda, two of the top bookies at the time for the outfit. So Hal Smith, he trusted B.J. Jehoda. They met at a restaurant not too far from B.J. Jehoda's house. They had a nice dinner. They had some drinks. And B.J. testified he was trying to get him drunk to loosen him up a little. After they had dinner and drinks, B.J. suggested, hey, let's go back to my house for more drinks. Now, here's where Hal Smith should have caught the play. But he didn't. So prior to this, Rocky told him, park the car in the garage. Do not come into the house. You stay outside. So when B.J. Jehoda and Hal Smith pulled up to B.J. Jehoda's house, B.J. pretended like he was going to check the mail. He told Hal Smith, go on in through the kitchen sliding door. It's open. When Hal Smith opened up the sliding door, he was jumped by Rocky and Felice. Bobby Bellavia, Louis Marino, and according to B.J. Jehoda, Bobby Salerno was the man dressed in black. They jumped him, they stabbed him a couple times, strangled him, and killed him. Now, prior to back to B.J. Jehoda's testimony, he testified that from the mailbox, he could see through the kitchen window a couple of the men in the kitchen. He testified that one of those men dressed in black was Bobby Salerno. After they killed Hal Smith, B.J. Jehoda testified that he did go in the house. And when he got there, he said it again. I saw Bobby Salerno, Louis Marino, and Rocky and Bobby Bellavia all standing around an unconscious Hal Smith who was laying on the floor. And Rocky said to him, the next person that walks through the door is getting the same thing. So the crew ended up killing Hal Smith. 
BJ Jehoda left. He came back to the house and he noticed that somebody tried to clean up the kitchen area a little bit. He got a call from Rocky and Felice. Louis Marino couldn't find his cigar butt and reading glasses. He thought maybe he left them at the crime scene. Yeah. So yeah. BJ Jehoda testified. He looked through the kitchen. He looked through the house. He never found the cigar, never found the glasses. Later on, the government found Louis Marino's cigar butt with his DNA on it and his reading glasses and Hal Smith's car. Yeah. So that was another piece of evidence that linked Louis Marino to the murder scene. The very next day, DJ Jehoda went to Mexico. He took off. He's down there a couple weeks. He gets a call from Rocky and Felice saying there's a lot of heat. I need you to come home. I forget how many months after the killing, but they found Hal Smith's body in the trunk of his car in Elmwood Park. And Elmwood Park is a neighborhood where a lot of the Chicago Alpha guys live. So the authorities were kind of surprised to find Hal Smith's dead body in the trunk of his car in Elmwood Park. But for some reason, that's where they left it. They said when they popped the trunk, Hal Smith was stabbed repeatedly, and they used the word tortured and strangled. So he ended up trunk music like Sally D warned him. <laughs> really? Now, how did the defense try to counteract this eyewitness testimony other than to ask about his glasses, how well he could see. What was their line of questioning? They had to discredit that testimony. That was paramount. Well, they were diving into B.J. Jehoda's past, being a career criminal. He had an upcoming racketeering IRS case. He was looking at 10 to 20 years in prison. Mm -hmm. They brought in an actual model, a replica of B.J.'s house. And they showed where the mailbox was. They showed where the kitchen window is. And they said, it's literally impossible from where you said you were standing at the mailbox to look directly into the kitchen window. It's impossible to see that. So they accused him of lying, being a degenerate gambler, basically really trying to discredit him and call him every name in the book. But as I mentioned earlier, during the first trial, this was the first time B.J. Jehoda ever testified in court. And at the first trial, you had Bobby Salerno, Louis Marino, Sally De Laurentiis, Bobby Bellavia, and Rocky and Felice all in the courtroom. So BJ was a little nervous the first couple of days on the stand, Rocky and those guys staring at him. But in the second trial of Bobby Salerno, Rocky and those guys weren't in the courtroom. By this time, BJ was more relaxed, was more confident in his testimony, and he came across a little bit better than he did the first time. So what did you think of BJ? Was he making stuff up? Was he frantically trying to please the government? Or I didn't like BJ at all. I didn't like his arrogance. I didn't like nothing about him. That's why I made that comment during a break in the courtroom. But like I said, at first he said when he went to get the mail, he saw Bobby Salerno through the kitchen window. Then he came back and said, even though Rocky told him to stay out of the house, he said that he actually went in the house and saw Bobby standing over him. So I was a little, thought maybe there was a little bit of reasonable doubt there. But what really got me, Gary, he set up his friend to get murdered. Yeah. He lied and said, I thought Hal Smith was going there for a big meeting. <laughs> he knew damn well 
who was in that kitchen. They were all there with gloves on. He knew what was going to happen to Hal Smith when he walked in that meeting. But he tried to sugarcoat it and downplay his role in setting up that murder. Without B.J. Jehoda, the crew had a hard time getting hold of Hal Smith. And then also he showed no remorse at all that his friend was not only beaten and strangled, but tortured. Mm. Wow. Nicole Dude, I guess that's survival of the fittest subculture there in that Chicago outfit, man. And really all he had, he was looking at about 10 to 15 years maybe, and it was an IRS case, right? Money. Correct. Even if he'd have gone to trial, he might even got it by with less. And certainly if he'd have gotten a lot of time, he would have done it in a pretty easy prison and would have probably been able to get out reasonably early. He was not what we call a stand-up guy, was he? No, not at all. But it was quite obvious that he was really good friends with these guys. That's why I brought up, it's a luxury high-rise building in Wrigleyville called the New York New Yorker. They had a condo there, and BJ went into great detail that, like I said, they had an open-door policy. All the guys in the crew could use that condo for their own personal reasons. Now, I forgot to mention, BJ Jehoda also wore a wire on these guys. They had over 200 recorded conversations. And the best defense attorneys in the world, it's kind of hard to counter when they hear your voice on a wire. And after the murder, Bobby Salerno and Bobby Bellavia, they didn't know BJ had a wire, but they were talking about the casing and tailing of Hal Smith. They didn't reference killing him, but it was part of corroborating everything. Hey, why Bobby Salerno talking about tailing and casing Hal Smith if he never knew him or wasn't part of it? So when they play those videotapes, I don't remember the rest of the tapes, but I specifically remember the one of Bobby Salerno and Bobby Bellavia talking about Hal Smith, mm-hmm. how they had a hard time tailing him. They say videotapes, B.J. Yehoda. They turned him after the murder, but then he had him over at his house or someplace where the government had the whole room wired up with video and audio, like kind of like Red um, Wombat did. No, no, different than that. Not video. BJ wore an actual wire taped to his chest. Oh, okay. And I can't emphasize to you how dangerous Rocky and his guys were. These were some serious guys in the outfit, all made men. All these guys done a lot of heavy work. So it was pretty ballsy of BJ Jehoda, not only to testify against these guys, but to actually wear a wire. I mean, if they would have suspected any second that BJ's wearing a wire, they would have killed him on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. On the casing and tailing, as they used to call it, laying on of their victim, Hal Smith. Did they go into much detail? Do you remember much detail about that? Did they use like two or three cars? They kind of like a police surveillance or have any details on that? This was way back in the 90s. I remember they had a hard time pinning him down. They had a hard time tailing him. He didn't really have a set pattern. This guy was kind of like all over the place. He traveled a lot. So that's why at first they were going to hit him coming home or leaving his house either late at night or early in the morning, but they couldn't really get a good time to get him. So that's when Rocky switched to plan B and says, he told BJ, I want you to bring him to his house. Okay. All right. Anyway. I forgot to mention in BJ's kitchen, they also laid down a tarp, a painter's tarp to absorb some of the- Yeah. 
whatever. Well, that's right out of TV, I guess. <laughs> and I've seen that on different TV shows. Somebody walks in and there's like a big sheet of plastic when you walk in. And they go, oh, no. <laughs> but at the end, unfortunately for Bobby, he was found guilty. The jury, they believe B.J. Jehoda. And one thing I learned about going to these trials is a lot of these outfit guys, they hang out and pal around and do business with a lot of real lowlifes. Mm -hmm. These aren't like world-class men that they're hanging out with. Criminals hang out with other criminals. Like, for example, and a lot of these guys like B.J. Jehoda, because they've known Rocky and the crew for many, many years, they have so much detail, Gary, where even though some of them are killers and criminals, they have so much detail, and the prosecution does such a good job cooperating everything that most juries find them guilty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This was a sad one, though, because after Bobby was found guilty, his son Alex got up there and tried to keep his composure and basically said, you know, I know my dad more than anybody. You know, I know my dad's not an angel, but he had nothing to do with this. He was not there in the kitchen. But again, just trying to save his dad. Yeah. Yeah. But it was interesting because Bobby Salerno, of course, he was devastated that he's going to spend the, probably the rest of his life in prison. But again, he was so proud that his son was sitting there at the defense table. And then fast forward, Gary, while Bobby Salerno was locked up, I think it was right around 2016, Alex Salerno died mm. at 50-something oh, really? years. Before his father. Wow. Yeah. And then Bobby Salerno, he lived to be 88 years old. He did not die in prison. He got out, let's just say, a year, year and a half. And he ended up passing away with his family in Arizona. Okay. Yeah, I was, that was my next question is, did he ever get out and as he did? And then throughout my research and everything, I didn't know it at the time, but I found out later that Bobby Salerno was like a mentor, like a father figure to Mike, large guy Sarno. Hmm. Like he kind of brought him up through the ranks. Yeah. And then I remember during the Sarno trial, Alex Salerno sat in court every day kind of like to support the Sarno family. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that is quite a story that kind of showed that interaction of families and showing the, the kind of the duality, if you will, of a mob guy is he has a family. He's proud of his family. He takes care of his family, his blood family, but yet he goes to work and does these horrid, awful things for his other family. It's just, I don't know, that's part of the attraction of the mob, I always say. And as you know, there's no winners. You either end up dead or you end up in prison or cooperate. <laughs> yeah. Some of the guys in the Grand Avenue neighborhood, legitimate guys, they had nothing but wonderful things to say about Bobby Salerno. Not the mob guy, Bobby Salerno, the businessman, the boxer, the trainer, the prize fighter. Mm -hmm. Like you said, when I first started talking to you that some of these outfit guys, they're not all like Mad Sam DeStefano or <laughs> yeah. their families and friends too. Right. Yeah, and they have good personalities, a lot of them too, but kind of salesman types almost. It is amazing. Now, did he had people come and testify as a character witness, like he's an upstanding guy here, upstanding guy there? That part, I don't remember that. I, I'm sure he did. I don't really remember if he had character witnesses, but I remember during Joey, Family Secrets trial, Joey Lombardo had a couple character witnesses up there, and that was real entertaining. One was a boxer, Johnny Lira, who's like a 
lightweight championship boxer here in Grand Avenue. And then it was funny, Joey actually had his mistress get up there and testify what a great lover he was. <laughs> oh my God. I think you forgot that one did the family secrets, but you made up for it now. That's a good one. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, there's not too many major trials anymore. Most of the guys are all gone or they cooperate or take a plea before they go to trial. But back in the 90s, there was major cases every couple months. Yeah, it used to be everybody went, they wanted to have a full jury trial. Nobody copped a plea. That was the rule here in Kansas City. You don't cop a plea, you have a trial. Now, when Bobby Salerno had his trial, were there other mobsters that showed up, just sat in the gallery and none. watched nobody? No, none. Okay. Hardly ever will you see a mobster walk into the Dirksen Federal Building if he's not a defendant. They, they stay clear out of that building. I had a couple of guys in the Grand Avenue neighborhood told me, not mob guys, but friends of these mob guys, and they said, as soon as you walk in the Dirksen Federal Building, your rights get thrown right out the window. <laughs> I also know, as you know, they very seldom lose a case. Yeah, I know that. I don't think they ever do. And I forgot to mention... Mitch Mars was the lead prosecutor oh, yeah. against Bobby Salerno. Yeah, and he was family secrets prosecutor. And he's deceased now, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was Very sad. Uh, during the family secrets trial, he had a cough, a sore throat, and he kept drinking a lot of water. But we were so involved in the case, most of us, we had no idea that this man was sick. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after all the defendants were found guilty, he passed away of lung cancer, mm. never smoked a cigarette in his life. Mm. That was a real shock to all the lawyers and prosecutors at the Dirksen Federal Building. I'm sure a lot of the mob guys were probably laughing it up, though, because <laughs> he put them all away. They hated that man. But he was the best of the best. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a couple like that here, and they do not like Paul Becker or David J.J. Helfrey. They did not like them because they were bulldogs, man. I mean, you did not want them after you. They <laughs> <laughs> still I had a guy ask me recently, well, is Paul Becker still around? He's kind of involved, you know, in the periphery of it. Well, I know Paul Becker was still around. I said, yeah, he's still around. He's still prosecuting. Okay. <laughs> And I'm sure they do this all over, but one good thing the Chicago prosecutors did is, how do I say this? They schooled and trained all the upcoming young prosecutors right out of law school. Yeah. So they passed on a lot of their knowledge and experience to the upcoming prosecutors. Yeah. I mean, a very solid team. And for the most part, those federal prosecutors are good. The only reason they didn't go to a white shoe law firm and make more money, a lot more money, is because they just, they wanted to be an assistant U.S. attorney. And it's hard to get that job. you got to be top-notch to get that job, for the most really? part. There's always a couple of three political appointees that you can, you run into once in a while, but they don't get the big cases. Those guys that, the majority of them that get the big cases, they're good, they're smart. I remember, um, and we'll talk about this next time, during my very first trial was Gus Alex's trial, you had the two prosecutors were Chris Gear and Ron Safer. These guys were just just amazing prosecutors. Now they're both top defense attorneys. Yeah, yeah. Well, Helfrey is too. Paul Becker's still down at the U.S. Attorney, but Helfrey's he did a lot of white collar crimes after he defended after he left, and he defended some mob guys too, and did some appeals for some of them. 
I made a comment to one defense attorney, one of Mike Sarnell's attorney. He also represented Chuan that the crooked cop at the family secrets trial. Sometimes, not so much now, but early on, Gary, there was probably about five to seven senior citizen, old retired gentlemen that were court buffs. I was the youngest one of them. And these guys were 70, 80 years old. One of them was an IRS tax agent. Paul Whitcomb knows some of these guys. And sometimes the lawyers would ask the court buffs, hey, what'd you think of that witness? Or what do you think about that one juror? Kind of like to get a, kind of get their opinion on things. But in my opinion, the prosecutors, I always thought were a lot sharper, a little bit more polished than some of the defense attorneys. No disrespect to the defense attorneys. And I actually said that to uh, this one guy, Damian Cheros. I said, you know, no offense. It seems like the prosecutors are a lot sharper. He's like, Jimmy, we're all good lawyers, but they have all the evidence. You try to represent a guy like Frank Calabrese. (laughs) And he made a good point. Yeah, yeah. But I still agree with what I said earlier. In my opinion, the prosecution lawyers are a little sharper, I think. Yeah, no, they're going to dress a little better, a little more square looking. And just like I said, they get the best of the best out of law school. If you either go to a white shoe firm or you try to go into the U.S. attorney's office or you prove your worth out there in the small courts and the associate circuit courts and the circuit courts, and then you may, if, if you love that criminal law, then you'll go into the prosecutor's office. All right. Well, James M. Light, this has been great. Another story of a Chicago mob trial. Let's talk a little bit before we leave about your YouTube page. Tell everybody about that. James has his own YouTube page. Yeah, I wanted to share all my courtroom stories with people. So I started my own little YouTube page. I'm not really doing it for money. I'm still kind of even learning how to post content, but it's called Chicago Mob Trials by Jay Casenza, that's my mom's maiden name. And it's basically just my stories of attending all these major trials. Stories about Larry Hoover. He ran the Black Gangster Disciple Gang, one of the largest street gangs in the country. He ran this jail, he ran this gang from his prison cell. (laughs) So when he would talk to his guys on the street, the government put an ultra thin transmitter in the visitors packs and picked up hours of conversations. Now, these two guys were talking in code. The average person in the courtroom had no idea what they were talking about, but the government hired a black Ivy League FBI agent, and she broke down the code. (laughs) When they talked about cocaine, they would use the word chicken. When they would talk about a certain gang that owed them money, they would use sport terms, New York Giants, New York Jets, Philadelphia Eagles. So to hear their code was pretty interesting. Sam Carlisi trial I went to, Family Secrets trial. So my little show is a little different because I'm talking about actual stories and evidence that went on in the courtroom. But it's called Chicago Mob Trials. All right, you guys check that out. You know, I always say rising tide lifts all boats. So and James didn't try to make any money out of it. I don't really make any money out of it. I do have ads on there because I have enough followers, but <laughs> I ain't going to get rich off of the ad revenue off my YouTube channel. So James, I really appreciate you coming on and I look forward to doing another Gus Alex trial one of these days. Yep. Yep. All right. That's Thanks a real a good one. All right.
So guys, don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles and look out for motorcycles when you're out there on the streets. And if you have a problem with PTSD, be sure and go to the VA website if you're a veteran and get that hotline. And if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol or addiction of any kind, our friend Anthony Ruggiano, and you know, I interviewed him. He's the son of Fat Andy Ruggiano of the Gambino family. He is in the treatment center business and works with recovering people. And he has a hotline that's on his site, reformedgangsters.com, or just go to YouTube and Google Anthony Ruggiano. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. And we Thank got you, Jerry.